I think it's super important to stay true to what you feel in your gut is the right thing to do. So when you look back, right or wrong, good or bad, hey, I made that decision to sell that stock, to leave that company, it was your choice. And those sting less than the ones that you didn't choose. Welcome to YMBA, a podcast brought to you by UCLA Anderson. I'm your host, Alex Brodnick. Today, we're unraveling the tapestry of a career that crosses borders and defies the conventional. Joining us is John Nierman, a master of cultural navigation and business innovation, whose professional voyage spans continents and industries. John's story is one of cultural bridges and unspoken languages. It's a tale of a man who took the helm of various factions and corporate giants, not through linguistic prowess, but through a profound understanding of cultural nuances and the art of reciprocity. From the enchanting corridors of Disney to the dynamic digital landscapes of EA and onto the bright lights of his own talk show and media ventures, John's path is as insightful as it is inspiring. Now, let's take a leap into the past and explore the beginnings of this remarkable journey. John, your career started in the world where dreams come true, Disney. How did those early experiences lay the foundation for the rich tapestry of your professional life? So I'll take you back a little bit further only because that explains my Disney bug. Grew up in the Midwest, Southern Illinois, family vacation every year was Walt Disney World. Yes, I'm one of those creepy guys where, wow, this is fun. I want to work for the company. So it just got in the blood early on. I saw what it did for our family, having a great time. And then when I went to undergrad, which was at the University of Denver, actually just networked my way into an interview with Disney. And uh, I had the mouse ears on during graduation. I was ready to roll out to Anaheim. It was great. So that's how I got in the door. And then I just had to kind of figure it out from there. And how long were you there? 15 years. So to your point, I, I bounced around a little bit location-wise. I just you know started out as a theme park intern which means I, I get to do everything. Right? I was like fantasy. I was assigned to fantasy land. Let's go cook a couple burgers. Let's go do a tour, all that stuff. So I always wanted to be a TV though, because that I wasn't. Uh, that was my thing. That's how I kind of entertained myself growing up was was television, and I eventually then got it into the Disney Channel, and uh, moved to Dallas with them for a couple of years to be a sales rep in Dallas, Texas, and Oklahoma and Arkansas, and then moved to California, Burbank, and had much more opportunity out there to grow. I'm really intrigued by the variety of roles you've held at Disney. Starting as a theme park intern, then jumping into TV, and eventually moving to California. That's quite a journey. What was your mindset like during these transitions? How did you decide to make each move? You know, it's funny. Disney's big on synergy, and they have these programs where you get a chance to meet people in different parts of the company. And I kind of picked this up in undergrad was the whole networking thing, uh, getting involved at school, you know, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do there still. Obviously, it's a great thing, highly recommend it. But got to meet a lot of administrators, et cetera, who opened the door for various networking for me. So at Disney, I wanted to do the same thing. Even though I was either in theme parks or TV, I wanted to meet the people at the studios and animation and publishing and consumer products. And I mean, Disney had 78 divisions, so you could only go so far. But then when you had an opportunity where they, they had a kind of a synergy rep 
come from your group, you know, I threw my hand in and I got to meet the head of Synergy who reported to the CEO, Michael Eisner at the time. Uh, so it was tremendous access and it just gave me an ability to, to get in front of a lot of people, including Roy Disney himself, you know, Walt's nephew. So it was just, it was, I, I think that that's ultimately what did it was just really trying to understand. And I was genuinely curious about the company and how it worked. Uh, I read every book I could about Walt Disney and why he did this. So I think I became one of those just super Disney freaks that either worked for me or against me, depending who I was talking to in the company. It scared some people, trust me. Uh, but at the same time, it, it worked out really well, I think, just in terms of the job and you know enjoying what you do. And along with being curious, did you have any specific goals or milestones in mind during this journey? Or were you more about going with the flow? I mean, I always wanted that next step. So I, I always looked at myself as kind of ambitious in that sense of, all right, I'm a rep. How do I get to become manager, director, VP? Uh, who are the VPs there? You know, ah, oh, I could do that. You know, eventually, come on, you know, it's not that hard. Figure out a way to get there. And again, it's I, I, something, you know, I, I think that you really have to have a great relationship with your boss. And you really, what I learned Kind of, I had I, everything at Disney wasn't smooth. I had one boss there that was more than happy to throw me out. He didn't like me, and I just didn't click with that guy. But a majority of them, I had a great relationship with, and they supported me because I knew I worked for my boss and not the company. And you know, it's really about how do you make that person successful? How do they value me more? You know, as a member of their team, that they're willing to kind of throw their name behind me when that promotion opportunity comes up. So that's that's how I navigated. I, w- I got up through TV to a VP level at the Disney Channel. Um, you know, because I jumped out of sales and marketing into media relations. Because again, that person, it was interesting. I it was access to the president. Uh, it was a big year for us. We were doing like a tenth year celebration. So again, it was just taking those opportunities to meet the right people, and the same thing happened for feature animation. You know, this was back in the '90s, Alex. So we're going way back, but Lion King era, etc. Feature animation was king of the world. No pun intended on Lion King, but you know, it was great to get over to the studio and then even more access. But that was a boss that didn't like me, and he's like, literally, this isn't working for me. You need to go find something else. So. I went to talk to the head of HR for the company. I said, you know, I always wanted an international gig. And that's ultimately what led to Hong Kong, which was the best turn of fortune for me. It's amazing how a setback turned into such a game-changing moment for you. Speaking of changes, tell us about your time working in Hong Kong. What was that like? Well, it was interesting. I mean, my wife was six months pregnant. We'd never been to Asia. We sold our house in Los Feliz and just went for it. You know, I, I think because we were, I think we were at that stage, uh, I was, uh, how old was I? I was late, to, early 30s. So, you know, I thought it was a good part of my career where I could do this international experience, get a global perspective. It got me back in television because it was running marketing for all of Disney TV over there. And it really exposed me also to kind of an international management team. So you had somebody from India, from China, from UK. So all these different styles coming together that you know weren't as pervasive here in California, at least you know in my group at the time. So that worked out well, and we just clicked, and we were able to experiment and do new things. and And timing was great because Disney announced a theme park 
in Hong Kong, and they started putting more resources behind it, which allowed me then to take those corporate positions and ultimately run the company out there. So after getting this international experience, did it shift how you saw the business world, your role in it, or even your personal outlook on life? Oh, 100%. So I'm like, well, this is great. I don't, I, you know, I, I couldn't have become president in the U.S. as quickly as I did there, number one. So the path was a better path. It was a faster path. Um, number two, dealing with China and just major markets that, you know, were so important to the global economy. And for Disney, so much of our stuff came from China, all the merchandise, you know, for example. We're trying to break into the Chinese market um, because they have tremendous restrictions. They only allow a certain amount of international films per year. So really learning those restrictions, learning how to navigate around them, working with local partners, dealing with government officials, that was new, uh, was, was super important for my development. It made me a little more mature as an executive, and it just made me appreciate different perspectives a lot more because we often just hear about our own and the company and please take this product, you, you know, consumers will love it, without understanding that element of reciprocity and what could you do for them. That's really interesting about reciprocity. So how did deciding to pursue your MBA at Anderson come into play in all this? A lot of my bosses were talking about the importance of an MBA, and that was really important at Disney. And fortunately, they were supportive. And fortunately, Disney had the tuition reimbursement program, so I could get paid to go to school and get my MBA, which was fantastic. Uh, so I did the fully employed. I was a FIMBA, and I was there. That was 92 to 95 you know, when I finished. And that was a chance just to get to meet other people. Uh, so, you know, it, it really started kind of building those bonds where it was really important for me. And and just that, I was, I don't think I was ever a great student, you know, but really forcing myself to learn and having the different perspectives from people that were already working, I found extremely valuable. How did getting your MBA at Anderson open new doors for you, like your international experiences did? Did it change your approach at Disney? It certainly gave me more gravitas within the company. So, you know, there were there were like those management above me that that was important for. I think respected that I was able to do that while maintaining the job and performing on the job. And I think I had switched. I referenced earlier how I went from Disney Channel to media relations back to Disney Channel. All that happened while... I was getting my MBA. So I think I had two promotions during that time period. So there was a lot of life-changing experiences going on, which is, I, I think, an important part that you could do the school and still do well at your job, and you don't have to really necessarily put something on hold, especially with UCLA, you know, when you've got those programs where you're, you could do the FIMBA uh, or the executive. I think it's fantastic. Wow. It's amazing that you managed to earn two promotions while working towards your MBA. Many people worry about juggling work and study, but you made it look doable. So what was the next big step for you after these achievements? Then I went to electronic arts. So I, I never thought I would leave the Walt Disney Company. It was at a time in the uh, early 2000s when Michael Eisner was being forced out of the company. Bob Iger was his president, and Bob ran our group. So, you know, having that access to Bob was great. But, you know, there were rumors because Roy Disney was forcing the change that that Bob was going to go with Michael. So it was very much at that time just so unclear. The stock had plummeted. 
it was a bit chaotic. Video games, I didn't know really anything about. Seriously, I, I got stuck in the 80s playing Frogger and Pac-Man, so I, I didn't have the PlayStations and all that. But I heard and read about Electronic Arts, that they were the top video game company in the world. And I actually saw a headline that said, is this the next Disney? And I got called by a recruiter to run Electronic Arts. And I said, no, I don't want to leave Disney. And then I, all these things happened like I just described. You know, It was a little chaotic in terms of what's going to happen. And then I said, okay, never mind. Let's talk. And it was... Uh, it was great. I interviewed I interviewed with the president of Electronic Arts, a guy named John Riccatello. So he uh, gave me the opportunity and I took it and it was really, really good to learn that part. Wow. And you were still working in Asia for EA, right? I was still working in Asia at this stage. So this is five years in Asia. So I went out in 98. This was 2003 when I left Disney in, in November of 2003, moved to Electronic Arts. It was a little bit scary because you you lose that business card of, you know, head of Disney Asia. And I'm sitting there thinking, who really knows electronic arts? Well, as it turns out, a lot of people do. The video game industry is as large as music, TV, and movies combined. In fact, bigger. So a massive, and this was just the beginning, 95% of EA's revenue was still packaged goods, the console games. They had not really done a mobile game yet or an online game yet. Korea and China was leading the charge there. So for us to be able to do the first of those games for the company was something fantastic. And I mean, I probably grew more in those seven years at Electronic Arts that I had than I did in my 15 at Disney. That's a powerful reflection. To grow more at EA in seven years than during a 15-year span at Disney certainly speaks volumes. It illustrates the unique opportunities that can come from an emerging company, even one of EA's scale. What do you think were the key factors at EA that contributed to such a significant period of learning and growth for you? It was interesting. It was, it was certainly challenging. At EA, I had an experience where I had six different bosses in seven years. The guy that hired me left probably four months later. And then they kind of put somebody in that wasn't that interested in international. And then it bounced around a little bit. So that was that was the tough part navigating from a professional level internally. Externally, it was it was very interesting and very challenging because we're trying to find strategic partnerships in Korea and China. And you've got some key players that are that are working. Many times they're internet companies uh, like NHN in Korea. There are specific video game companies like Nexon. So just getting to understand, number one, the cultures. I don't speak the languages. You know, I could, uh, everybody always asks me, how do you speak Chinese? And um, no, I'm not that smart. It's really, really hard. <laughs> and, you know, there's, you have translators and maybe I was a little lazy, but uh, the, the part was really more important was the culture and understanding how they operate culturally. So I think just learning all that was really, really important for me in a good growth aspect of just dealing with, with the different partnerships. Wow. Navigating the business scene in China without speaking the language. That's impressive. It really shows how understanding the culture can be key. Shifting gears to your entrepreneurial leap, Founding your own production company must have been a bold move. Could you walk us through what drove you to that step and start this new chapter? I always wanted to do my own thing. 
So the question was when, and if you get on this corporate path where it's going well, um, I didn't see a reason to jump, you know, it, but at the same time, I was always restless. I always wanted to, you know, leave something that I felt that I helped build. And, and I don't know if that's ego. I don't know if that's ambition. Uh, I don't know if that's just an affliction, but <laughs> whatever it is, you know, I knew that I would have an unfulfilled need and a regret if I didn't try something on my own. So I think at the right time uh, with EA, uh, you know, and again, there was there was a little bit of turmoil in the company. They had gone through a couple of CEOs. I don't know why I attracted that type of thing at the corporate timing and the stock went down. I thought, well, screw this. I'll go out. I had told uh, my wife at the time I was going to be a talk show host. That was part of my, you know, seduction in college. And it took a while. But then I finally decided, I said, look, you know, there's no late night talk show in Asia. So I figured this is the entree. I'm not going to quit without anything. I want to go figure out a way to create a late night talk show in Asia. So this this white guy from the U.S. is somehow going to figure out a way with all the multiple languages across Asia, figure out a way to do that. And quietly shot a pilot with somebody that I knew, had a couple of guests, really copied kind of the Letterman Leno format at the time. And uh, NBC and Fox were interested. And it was crazy. So we did it and we started on the weekend show and I had to go to my boss at EA and say, hey, by the way, there's this little talk show that I have the opportunity to do. And they were super cool and they let me do it for a year while I worked at EA. And then eventually I jumped off to do it full time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, I'm sure that's not what your bosses were expecting to hear. No. And again, you talk about, it's like the Disney thing where I'm super Disney and I probably annoy people with all my Disney trivia. You either like it or you don't. So I think half the people in the company thought I lost my mind and focus because you really don't want your your president of the company uh, dabbling on the side with something else. And others thought it was kind of cool, you know? So, you know, I, I was just fortunate to have the right boss at the right time and it didn't it didn't interfere it was it was a weekly show it wasn't that big of a deal i didn't think it was there were very few sleeping hours put it that way but it was interesting and it was hard yeah i can imagine and when it came to your talk show did you view it primarily as a creative project or were you approaching it with a business mindset no i saw it as a business i i saw that i wanted to create a production company we, and we did we called it far west entertainment and the, the idea of the company was that you were going to bridge the east with the west and we because it didn't there was not much content from asia going to the west at the time this was 2010 there was not an Asian singer that hit the charts. There wasn't an Asian actor that had won an Emmy or an Oscar. So they were really off the map, yet they had this amazing just entertainment world out there that I felt could work globally. So I wanted to create a company that would help bridge the East with the West. And I thought the talk show was a perfect way to do it. All right, It gets me into that kind of uh, world where the celebrities are there and it gives a little bit of credibility. And then we built a talent search company. And I think we were trying to copying the Simon Cowell model where he's doing all these different TV projects. So that, that was the idea. Sounds like a very smart idea. So with the talk show rolling, what other projects were you working on with Far West Entertainment? What was the big picture for the company at that point? I wanted to create like an Asian Spice Girls 
So I thought that would be the way to break an Asian artist into the U.S. If you kind of think about girl groups and et cetera at the time, they had tried some of the K-pop back then that didn't really translate. So we did this huge search called Project Lotus. We went to China, Korea, Japan, India, the Philippines. We did a big narrow down to finding one singer from each. We brought him to Hong Kong. We put him in a group. We trained them by one of the original Spice Girls producers, and we set them out. You know, we set them out, but we did it without a label, and it was super expensive. And I think because we didn't have a label, and I was really naive and and probably stubborn about how the industry worked, that it was too hard to break in. And we burnt through so much money, even though their first single was with Snoop Dogg, uh, Quincy Jones produced them. They were the first Asian artist to hit number one on the U.S. Billboard chart and dance chart. Um, they opened for Bieber. You know, there wasn't an audience in the West. We were a little ahead of our time, perhaps, considering what's uh, worked, you know, over the past few years. Um, but that really, we just, we didn't have the resources anymore and then ultimately understood that music videos were making money, and that led us into Loop. Interesting. So honing in on music videos as the potentially most profitable avenue, you launched Loop Media specifically for that. Could you delve deeper into that journey? What were the challenges and triumphs you encountered as you focused on this niche? Yeah, so I mean, this was, uh, it was funny because Loop came on kind of as, I mean, you're not going to say by accident, but evolution of a company. And that group blush was in a recording studio in Burbank. And a guy that owned that company was shooting a music video. And he said, you know, the music video business is really big right now. I'm like, I had no idea because MTV had stopped doing music videos for years. But he said, YouTube is about 40% music videos. So a ton of revenue is coming, but there's really no video experience for consumers. It's mainly all audio. So we decided that we were going to try to focus on that and create a business around music videos. And then we bought a company called Screenplay Entertainment out of Seattle that owned a massive library of music videos. And they had put those in bars and restaurants. So they were licensing them to places like Margaritaville, Hard Rock, Yard House, and we thought, okay, this, this could be something very interesting. And that's ultimately what we do today. We do more than music videos, but we provide free streaming TV for businesses. But the music video foundation is what we lead with. And that's how Loop started. That's a really smart business approach, adapting and evolving with the market like that. So that brings us to the present time. When you think back on everything you've done, how big of a part do you think your education played? Like... Were there any standout lessons or skills from your time at Anderson that really helped you along the way in your career? I think what I learned at Anderson was, it's going to sound really basic and simple, but it's that people are people aspect. You got to appreciate, just because I was in marketing and sales, it doesn't mean I don't appreciate someone who's studying finance or who's an engineer or lawyer. And I think it was really important to have that mix in the class where you can learn those different perspectives. So our study group had all that. And I, it really made me think more broadly. And it also made me stay true to who I am. I'm not going to be as smart as some of these people, but I can be more entertaining. So I'm going to do that in this group and keep everybody uh, <laughs> focused and happy. And there are going to be some people who are going to do a better job on the work. And that's great because that'll benefit me. So I think that whole aspect of staying true to who you are is super important, not only at school and as you're meeting people, but continuing on through your career. 
I love that perspective. People are people. It really ties in with how you thrived in a place where you didn't even speak the language. So for my last question, John, for those who are torn between the stability of a big corporation and the freedom of entrepreneurship, what advice would you give? How should they navigate that crossroads? I don't think there is a path. I think that never let people put you in a box. For me, getting the corporate foundation, I, I would argue if, if I'm talking to my kids, and I have, I have three of them, you know, I say, look, I, the corporate foundation is great. You don't need to stay three, five years like I, I thought I had to. But I think it helps a certain amount of discipline. I help it, it helps you understand structure. Um, but, you know, we're in a world today where everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Everybody wants to build their own thing. It's hard. It is super hard. And I found that having a little more credibility and experience with a little more structure first was very, very valuable. So I would never believe anyone that says you're one or the other. I still hear it to this day. You know, I still hear people like, oh, you're more of a corporate guy than an entrepreneur. And and some people are like, wow, you're a better entrepreneur than you were in corporate. And I don't know, I like to think I was decent at both, you know, and uh, I'm glad I tried and I don't think there's any straight path. The idea that there's no straight path couldn't be more fitting of a summary for John Nearman's career. This conversation has reinforced the notion that with undying passion, adaptability, and a readiness to pivot, the possibilities are boundless. It's a journey that leads from being an intern at a theme park to becoming a late-night show host in China. John's story vividly illustrates that embracing flexibility and seizing opportunities not only guides us through a diversity of experiences, but also equips us to eventually carve out our own unique paths. His career is a testament to how adaptability in the face of change can be a powerful tool for personal and professional growth. By being open to the twists and turns of our journeys, we prepare ourselves to create and navigate our own distinct futures, shaping a path that's uniquely our own. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Stay with us this season on YMBA for many great stories to come. And be sure to check out Anderson on social media at UCLA Anderson.